Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from Biden's tax proposals to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined in person at the Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri by Pat Brown. Pat is PwC's U.S. International Tax Policy Leader. Prior to joining PwC, Pat was at General Electric, where he had roles including Senior International Tax Counsel and Tax Director of GE Power & Water. Earlier in his career, Pat was also the Associate International Tax Counsel at Treasury. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be with you again. Pat, this is your fifth appearance on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. And I wanted to start by congratulating you as the first member of the Five Timers Club. So my first question before we dive into the Green Book, and you know I'm really excited to talk about the Green Book, is who is your favorite Saturday Night Live Five Timers host? And and this is multiple choice to make this easier for you. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) We have Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin, St. Louis's own John Goodman, Tom Hanks, and Drew Barrymore. Well, that is a tough one because I uh, admire all of those folks, but I think I'd have to go with the classic Steve Martin. Um, I think Steve Martin is a comic and, and a talent, frankly, uh, without peer. So I think I'd have to t- uh, take Steve Martin. In- including a fantastic banjo player. I'm a big Steve Martin fan as well. Great musician. But yeah. but I'm going to differ with you on this. I'm going to pick my, my childhood crush from E.T., <laughs> Drew Barrymore. I, I've I've always had a thing for Drew. I think she's very entertaining. It's hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with that. All right. So let's get in. Let's dive into the, the substantive material. It's been a few years since we've heard of this thing called the Green Book that has been issued by the U.S. Treasury. And we're going to dive into some of the specifics. But can we just start today by reminding listeners, since I don't think we've seen this since 2017, and frankly, it, it feels longer than that, um, but but what is this Treasury Green Book? What is this document that was just released that we're going to go through? Right. So the Green Book is called the Green Book because the cover of the print edition is generally green, although it's not always green. One year when I was a Treasury, I think it was blue. And I don't know that we called it the Blue Book because I think that would have been confusing. Yeah, that's something entirely different. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's another podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> But the Green Book is officially titled something like the General Explanation of the Administration's Revenue Proposal. So it is a description of the revenue measures, the tax code affecting measures in the president's budget. Uh, The president's budget, of course, is if the president does a budget, and the president doesn't always have to do a budget, but if the president does a budget, the budget is something that that the administration presents to Congress with the administration's spending and tax what I would call priorities or plans or proposals. Uh, So the budget is many volumes uh, and it gets submitted to Congress. Uh, One of the things that goes to Congress along with the budget is this narrative description. So it's generally, you know, each description of of a tax proposal, maybe it's around a page long, and it's written in a style that tax people are very familiar with. So mm-hmm. it talks about a, maybe a one-paragraph description of present law, then talks about why the administration is proposing to change, so reasons for change, and then it has a brief explanation of the proposal, and it is always accompanied uh, by a revenue estimate. Now, this is not an official revenue estimate. It's an estimate that's done by the Treasury Department economists. The official revenue estimates come from the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, but nevertheless gives you a sense of 
what some very smart economists think these proposals are expected to raise. So in a nutshell, that's what the Green Book is, this narrative description, not super detailed, not legislative text, but, you know, generally speaking, about a page long that talks about this is what we propose to do and this is why we're proposing it. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the Trump administration broke a number of traditions. And I think we, we had seen, at least throughout my career, every year we'd have this green book and it would indicate, okay, this is what the administration, right, the executive branch hopes to do. And we would pour through it and then check the revenue estimates to figure out, all right, does this kind of make sense with the way we're thinking about it? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But it was really unusual, right? Not for the last four years, not not to have that. And it seems that we're we're back in that that tradition again. Yeah, and I think from a certain perspective, the Trump administration, the Trump administration, of course, came into office saying we're going to reform the tax code. Mm. Uh, and in their very first year, of course, they set out to do that and and did so. Why they chose not to release a green book as part of that initial foray, we don't know. But then presumably after that, I think a lot of it was, well, we just reformed the tax code, so we're not proposing major tax changes. All right. So we have this green book now. The administration has now given us a little bit more meat on the bones that we're going to unpack here to mix metaphors. <laughs> um, but what is actually left for this to become law? So before we dive too much into this and everybody starts their hair on fire, which is probably <laughs> too late, um, what what's left for this to actually become law of the land? Yeah. So officially what's left is everything uh, for this to become the law of the land. And the, the green book has no you know binding effect on the Congress or any, or any other body. Uh, frankly, uh, it's really just sort of, hey, here's the starting point for what the administration would do uh, with respect to tax proposals or tax priorities. Um, it is often picked up and will certainly in this case be picked up by the tax writing committees in Congress, will be studied closely by the tax writing committees, who will then make a determination, starting, of course, with the House Ways and Means Committee, which has to originate any uh, tax legislation under the Constitution. So the House Ways and Means Committee will carefully be studying the Green Book, I'm sure already is, mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll make a determination as they proceed to put together their tax legislation for the year as to what provisions of the Green Book they will include. But it is entirely up to the House Ways and Means Committee to decide what goes into any tax legislation that would start in the House and obviously then move over to the Senate. So, you know, officially, the administration's role from this point forward is when a bill reaches the president's desk, if and when a bill reaches the president's desk, he signs it or vetoes it. Uh, so from that perspective, you know, I don't want to, the Green Book is certainly not without meaning because it mm -hmm. is something that will be carefully studied. Uh, but it is not even really an official starting point to the legislative process. It's more sort of a you know, a guide or a reference that the tax writing committees in the Congress can use. All right. Well, let's let's start unpacking some of the different proposals here that we've seen in the Green Book. And we're going to be focusing really on obviously the corporate provisions and specifically some of the cross-border provisions because there's a lot in there from an individual perspective and environmental type policies, right. which we'll touch on one that, that covers, you know, corporate internationals, but really focusing on the corporate international provisions. So Let's start with the first one, corporate tax rate. Where Where is the administration heading? So no surprise, because during the campaign, uh, President Biden, then candidate Biden, talked about uh, a 28% corporate tax rate uh, when uh, the administration put out their fact sheet in late April, 28% mm -hmm. corporate tax rate. And so it was not a surprise that in the Green Book, the administration is proposing a 28% corporate tax rate. Um, 
it, it, when they talk about this, uh, certainly uh, people like Secretary Yellen and others, when they talk about the, the corporate tax rate, they will say, well, we had a 35% tax rate before uh, 2017, before the tax reform in 2017. Uh, the Republicans in the Trump administration took it all the way down to 21. We're simply proposing to take back half of it. And we're going to therefore increase the rate to halfway between 35 and 21 so by taking it up to 28. Now, that's a bit of an oversimplification, and that's probably putting it mildly, mm -hmm. because, of course, the 2017 Act had a lot of what we as tax people call base broadening. So right. a lot of other tax changes that actually increased the effective corporate tax rate, the, you know, the effect of uh, essentially how much tax a company actually paid. So there were a lot of other tax changes in 2017. So a 28% corporate tax rate would actually completely, more than completely wipe out the net tax cut that companies got in 2017, and and frankly, pretty significantly go beyond that point. So 28% is really uh, a pretty uh, astonishingly high number when you when you factor it in with all of the other changes. Yeah, there was one specific provision as part of the Green Book, which I found a little curious insofar as how the implementation of that rule would work of the, the corporate rate change, particularly for fiscal year taxpayers. One of the provisions that I was not frankly focused on, I'm confident my tax law professor that's listening to this is like, <laughs> we probably covered this, was section 15. Now, admittedly, my entire career, we were stuck at a 35% corporate rate until you know four years ago. But I learned that section 15, right, is it effectively prorates, or for those right. uh, fiscal year taxpayers, it effectively prorates that corporate rate change. But there was something specific in the green book with respect to kind of that proration rule. And I was kind of curious, it's like, well, didn't section 15 cover that? Or was that something different? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I read it generally, Doug, as a reference to section 15. Okay. So I didn't read it as kind of going beyond that. But one of the things that we should have noted, I should have noted when we talked about the green book generally is sometimes people do make the mistake and I say this as somebody who, who wrote up Green Book provisions when I was in Treasury. Uh, we sometimes make the mistake of reading this like it's legislative text, and it's not legislative right. text. So um, we, we have to be careful when we read through this stuff to sort of, well, it's kind of directionally. I, I think I understand what they mean here, um, but it's, it, it's not really meant to be read that way. But I, I generally read that as a reference to Section 15 and not as something special to, beyond that. But to be honest, I didn't focus. I, I'm like your, uh, in your situation, and maybe my law professor uh, would, would, uh, <laughs> would have a problem with me as well. Although I, I, I feel like I can say with great confidence, we never talked about Section 15 when I was in law school. Okay. Yeah, why would we? Like the corporate rate had been stable right. for, 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 so many, for so many years. Um, so before we get into some of the additional proposals, um, I wanted to put some context in because raising the rate from 21 to 28, you know, we had spent, we, I, I, if I have to look at that, OE, the chart of OECD corporate tax rates and comparing those corporate tax rates and what an outlier we were at 35 and then at the 21, we kind of right in the middle and then right. 28 is going to put us back in the outlier. Why does this matter? Not just the corporate tax rate, but but corporate tax in general. And why is it important for particularly American-based companies yeah. to be able to compete outside the U.S. on a level playing field? Yeah. So the, the, the key things there, from my perspective, Doug, you focused on the international stuff and outside the U.S. And I think that's, <clears throat> that's really important. 95% um, of the world's population is outside the United States. 75% of what we would call the world's economic purchasing power uh, is outside the United States. And those are obviously kind of widely, widely acknowledged, um, you know, economic statistics. Um, 
most U.S.-based companies, U.S. headquartered companies, of course, started out in the United States. So the, the United States remains a really, really important market uh, for these companies. But if they're going to continue to grow their businesses, they need to be focused pretty significantly on the 95% of the world's population and the 75% of the world's purchasing power that is outside of the United States if they're going to continue to grow their businesses. Um, and so when you think about you know, the impact of competing in foreign markets against foreign headquartered multinationals, and you say, okay, well, you know, what is the impact then on U.S. companies? Well, a lot of these U.S. companies have a lot of jobs in the United States that are very directly tied to, to their success in foreign markets. In some cases, that's because they make a lot of products here in the United States that are exported, uh, exported and installed in foreign markets. Uh, in other cases, uh, frankly, it's not economically viable for them to make everything here and ship it all, all around the world. But nevertheless, they have a lot of jobs, whether those are research jobs or other forms of you know, headquarters type jobs that support a global business. Uh, when you, I'm always struck when I talk to most uh, many business people, senior executives and companies, it is very intuitive to them that the success of their company in markets outside the United States is directly related to how many jobs they can support inside the United States. That's mm -hmm. not a hard proposition right. for them to understand. In fact, they when, when you ask the question to them, they sort of look at you like, well, what are you talking about? This, you know, If I didn't have the opportunity to expand my business in foreign markets, I would have to dramatically restrict or cut my, my U.S. workforce because that's, that's where my growth is. My growth is going to be outside the United States. Um, that is a point that is intuitively understood by most business executives. It is not a point that is intuitively understood by lots of policymakers, frankly. Um, uh, so many members of Congress tend to have this perspective of if you're doing something outside the United States, that means you're not doing it inside the United States, and we want you to do everything inside the United States. And you know, again, if you're going to access those markets uh, where 95% of the world's population operates, you're simply not going to be able to do everything inside the United States, either because it's not economically possible, or again, I didn't mention this, but in some cases, it's because foreign countries have local content requirements. You have to do things mm -hmm. either by, by law or by, by kind of custom in order to be competitive in their market. You have to have a physical presence there. Um, so this point about why does, now how does tax relate to all of that? Well, Quite simply, if you, you know, are in a tax posture where everything that you do costs you more than your competition, over time, you're going to lose market share. Uh, and again, that's not a hard proposition for business people to understand, but policymakers sometimes don't necessarily grasp that intuitively. And so there's a real, I think, both an opportunity and a need for the business community to have that kind of conversation with Congress to make sure that con congressional members and staff understand this point of, if I'm going to grow my business and I'm going to keep supporting U.S. jobs, good U.S. jobs, uh, I'm going to have to do it outside the United States. And that that requires me to be competitive outside the United States. Right. And to remind folks, that was the whole point of that defer, of the deferral regime, the pre-TCJA deferral regime, right? The concept was, yeah, we're going to have a corporate rate in the U.S. at 35, but we're going to allow companies to be able to go and compete in the local markets, not have a disadvantage from a tax perspective. And then as they earn that money and then repatriate it, 
then you know then they would be subject to the 35%. Right. That had its own policy challenges because of obviously the lockout right. effect. That's exactly right. Um, and so yeah. you know there, there there's there's hair on a number of these different yes. systems. Yes. I mean the merit of that system as you point out was as long as companies were you know permanently reinvested outside the United States they were able to compete at the local rate. Uh, and that meant that you know they were on an equal footing with their foreign headquartered competitors. Uh, as you point out the big problem with that was you, uh, as a U.S. company, you had a big disincentive to bring your earnings back to the United States and reinvest in your foreign earnings back and reinvest in the United States. And that's what Congress tried to do and get at in 2017. Now, as we know, they did a lot more than that. Right. <laughs> so one of the things that they did in 2017 was, and, and this goes back, um, you know, to, to, to Chairman Camp's proposals with the carrot and the stick related yes. to FDII and the, the guilty rate. And the concept was, right, that the, the the rate of tax that you would pay outside the U.S. at the guilty, so at 50% of the, the U.S. corporate rate would be roughly equivalent, and really 13.125 because you get an 80% foreign tax credit, right. that that would be equivalent to earning income related to particularly foreign sources, intangible, export-type income. So income, the way I think about it is income that is related to, to foreign markets. There was intended to be a balance there. Um, in, in the concept of what used to be known as capital export neutrality. I guess it's still known as capital <laughs> export neutrality. Um, but one of the, frankly, surprises to me, um, and I, I guess probably shouldn't be a surprise based on all the um, all the literature that's been put out is the repeal of FDII. So talk talk about talk about that. Yeah, I look. I think it, at least to me, it was a surprise. Now we first heard about it, you know, a few weeks ago that it was that it was the direction the administration was going to go. But it is not something that uh, President Biden talked about during the campaign. And you know, frankly, the idea of having an incentive for U.S.-based multinationals to do more in the United States. Um, ought to have, you know, bipartisan appeal. And so I was a bit surprised when I, you know, initially heard that the administration was going to propose to repeal FDII. Um, the explanation in the Green Book in some respects is sort of curious. I think there are two elements I'd focus on, one of which is they say, well, we're going to repeal FDII and we're going to <clears throat> excuse me, rep replace it with an incentive to do more R&D in the United States. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's right. basically what they say. Without uh, any details. Right. No, that... without any details about what they mean. But, you know, FDII is really an incentive that in some respect, in many respects, goes far beyond. It really isn't tied to research at all. It's tied to owning this valuable intellectual property. And, of course, you know, a lot of the jobs that go along with owning valuable intellectual property within the United States. So having the economic return associated with this valuable IP in the United States, uh, that's really what FDII is all about not about, you know, encouraging research. So there are, you know, many companies for whom FDII is really important and an attractive and powerful incentive who, if you say, well, I'm going to give you a greater research incentive, they say, well, that's, that's not what I need. What I need is something that, you know, encourages me um, to, to keep this valuable IP here in the United States. So that was, I thought, sort of interesting. The other thing that was interesting was the administration talks in the Green Book, talks about how FDII whether they use the term unfairly or not, but the, the, you know, the sentiment was it sort of unfairly gives a benefit to globally engaged U.S. companies over wholly domestic U.S. companies because FDII is only available with respect to products sold or services uh, provided in foreign markets. Um, well, of course, it's the companies engaged in foreign markets that face the relevant foreign competition. If you're entirely right. engaged in the United States, it's, it's sort of irrelevant 
uh, that you would have a preferential rate for your for for certain types of IP that would again encourage these globally engaged companies to re both remain remain competitive and have that IP in the United States. So I thought it was a little bit of a you know you know non sequitur I'll call it you know mm -hmm. to say well this is. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to single out the fact that uh, wholly domestic companies don't get this benefit. Well, right. They're not competing against foreign multinationals in foreign markets. And so a benefit for them is not not it's not directed at the competitive impulse that caused Congress to enact FDI in the first place. So I thought that was a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. But but back to your point, Doug, they tell us they're going to repeal FDII, but we really have no sense of what would come in its place. Uh, other than the fact that they think it's targeted at research activities in some, you know, at, at this point, unspecified way. So, you know, we, we will have to see what the House Ways and Means Committee does with this proposal. And if they take it forward and if they develop some form of a, you know, of a replacement that targets research or not, it, you know, we'll, we'll have to watch it unfold. Yeah. I mean, and we've seen this story play out in some other markets and, and I'm thinking like single and some other jurisdictions. And I'm thinking like Singapore, for example, of companies that have or countries that have gone away from kind of general exceptions for royalties or IP and are very focused on what I refer to as like the, the lab coats. So the, either the, the, the pharma industry or technology industry. And so, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of work for consumer products companies over the course of, of my career. And the, the concern that I have from a policy perspective is that there's still a lot of R and D, if you will, related to you know, new marketing campaigns, new products. And I mean, there's still lots of innovation that occurs in these companies. And my concern with, you know, if it, depending on how they define what that R&D is, is that, you know, does it potentially impact some of those consumer base, those consumer market type yeah. companies that don't have either the programmers or, yeah. or the white coats? Well, I mean, you use the term R&D. I would use the term jobs. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, really important, valuable jobs that are associated with developing IP that, to your point, wouldn't be described as research and development, right? So these are jobs that are associated with folks in the creative space, you know, right. designing ad campaigns or, you know, designing... Uh, uh, New items for quick service restaurants, for example. Right, I mean, there's right. Lots of or, or in the entertainment industry, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, kind of creative content that that is developed, uh, you know, that is eligible for FDII, but, you know, perhaps on its face wouldn't appear to be something that would be targeted by a research incentive. At least to the way a layman would think about it, they would say, well, that's, that's the lab coat person, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, so, or the programmer, right? That people think about that right. as sort of R and D stuff, but not necessarily the person who is developing creative content or a new ad campaign, uh, or a new method of doing business or delivering product to customers. But this is all, these are all valuable jobs and having an incentive to have that IP owned here in the United States. So we can tie that to where these jobs are developed. You know, again, that was the goal of Congress mm -hmm. in 2017. Right. So. All right, so let's move on to you know one of my favorite topics, guilty. So the global intangible low taxed income, a number of sweeping changes to the guilty regime. Um, do you want to walk through uh, some of those? Sure. Well, the easiest to describe, of course, is the increase in the guilty rate. Now, the guilty rate will go up naturally if the corporate rate goes up because, as you noted, uh, the guilty rate is determined as a percentage of the headline corporate rate. So today that percentage is 50%. Um, the Biden administration, of course, has proposed to increase the corporate rate, which we already talked about, has also talked about um, reducing the what the, the so-called Section 250 deduction. So reducing the differential between 
the headline corporate rate and the guilty rate. Today it's half. They would they would they would make it seventy five percent of the headline rate. So give a, a twenty five percent deduction under Section two fifty. So that's the easiest um, <clears throat> change to explain. The the second change uh, I would focus on is the elimination of what we call QBI. Um, so QBI is uh, an exemption from the guilty regime that applies to ten percent of your basis in tangible property outside the United States. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially what, it's, what it, it's trying to do is it's trying to provide for companies engaged outside the United States an exemption from the guilty regime for what, we, what economists would call the normal return or the routine return on their investment. And again, this goes back to the design of guilty, which is intended to focus on those high return intangibles uh, and the idea being that those that, that intangible property is more susceptible to being moved from one jurisdiction or, or another because of because of tax considerations. So have the you know essentially have the cure fit the disease was Congress's goal in 2017. So let's not have QBI, or excuse me, let's not have guilty apply to this routine return. And that's what QBI is intended to accomplish. Uh, the administration looks at QBI and says, Essentially, this is crazy. This creates an incentive mm. for companies to build factories outside the United States instead of inside the United States, because the more tangible property you have, the bigger your guilty exemption. Um, now, there are there are reasons to kind of debate and discuss that point, but the administration says we shouldn't have such an incentive. We should repeal QBI. So that's that's the second change. So increase in the guilty rate, mm -hmm. repeal QBI. And then the third is to do a, instead of doing what we have today, which is sort of an overall guilty computation where all of your foreign operations are looked at together, all of your earnings and all of your taxes just in one big pool, the administration says, no, we need to stratify this on a country by country basis. So a per country limitation. Um, Effectively, what that would mean for companies is that every single country in which they do business becomes its own foreign tax credit basket. Uh, and so for a lot of globally engaged companies, you know, they would go from today having four foreign tax credit baskets to having well over 100. Um, there is a huge amount of administrative complexity. That oh, sure. Yeah. I don't need to tell you that. All right. I did a plenty um, of 1118s throughout my career, Pat. Right, right. Um, yeah, the, it's hard to imagine the 1118 with that many uh, columns. Uh, I, I so. do remember, just to digress here, <laughs> the 1050 baskets. So I'm dating yes, myself yes, here. Yes, of course. But, yes. but, um, and I did quite a bit of work in kind of utilities and oil and gas. So, so I just remember just like how frustrating and challenging that was for having to do a separate basket. Yes. And for, for those that don't remember, if there was ownership percentage between 10 and 50%, those each required a, a separate yes. basket. Yes. And I remember that <clears throat> being a nightmare and it would nowhere approach the amount of volume of, of number of jurisdictions that most right. multinationals operate in. Yeah, and, and look, that, that complexity point is a point. I, I think the more fundamental point and the, the thing that I've heard more from companies that concerns them uh, is this notion that, you know, Guilty operates today on a current annual snapshot. You look at only your current year earnings. And, you know, that can be a pretty harsh system under current law. Um, but because you get to put all of your earnings in one big basket, you know, to the extent you have um, some losses in, in one jurisdiction and so you're not paying a lot of tax, you get to average that against, you know, what may be going on in another jurisdiction. If you only look in, within a single jurisdiction, and, you know, I'll just take a simple example, um, you know, you've lost money in the UK for several years, mm -hmm. just one simple example. Uh, and so you've got a net operating loss locally, and it's going to take you several years to burn through that. Uh, 
the the administration's proposal does not provide any any mechanism for for relief for that company. So in other words, that company would let's say after five years of losses in year six, they make a hundred dollars in the UK. They're not going to pay UK tax because they've got a big net operating loss they have to work through. Um, uh, but nevertheless, under a per country guilty, they would pay full guilty <clears throat> on every dollar mm-hmm. of earnings in the UK. And that's a pretty harsh result. And I know we'll probably talk a little bit later about the OECD, but the Mm -hmm. OECD, of course, has a version of a minimum tax in their Pillar 2 proposal. And they have tried, and they are trying, to figure out a way to smooth out these timing differences um, so that if you're only looking within a single jurisdiction, you know, the OECD would say you have to look over multiple years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The administration's proposal doesn't seem to contemplate that. And that's going to be a very, very harsh result. So it's going to end up imposing tax on companies who are not actually low taxed at all. Right. They just happen to have a loss, you know, in a country. Uh, and so they're not paying cash tax in that year. So I think in terms of the complexity of, wow, I'm going to have 150 foreign tax credit baskets. Yes, that's a concern for companies. A much bigger concern is this point of, but I have business cycle losses, I have startup losses, I have other timing differences that emerge. And if unless there is some mechanism that actually tries to smooth this out, which is, by the way, not easy to figure out how to do, let's be honest oh, yeah, about just that. How right? do you design a, st- a st- yeah. system like but that? But without that, the, the rule ends up really being very arbitrary and very, very harsh. You know, one of the other additional provisions um, was uh, elimination of the high tax exception for, for, for both sub F um, and, and guilty. And so... As I was thinking about how all of these provisions fit together without QBI, without a high tax exception, then it's just like, well, what income would be left for Section 245 Cap A, which is the dividends received deduction, which is our quote unquote territorial system. Now, I've made my opinion clear on this before about whether the 2017 <laughs> Act was really a territorial system or not. But it seems now that we have fully abandoned the the territorial system, at least based on, on these proposals. And the, the one piece that I could imagine that could be subject to 245 cap A is, and we'll just take your UK example. Imagine if you had income in one CFC and loss in another UK CFC, and then you would have to follow presumably the tested unit approach and, and, or, and, and you would end up with a potential, if you ended up with a net tested loss, you right. could still have some E&P that was 245 cap A eligible. Yes. yes. Now we're going to get to the potential restriction of, de- of deductions um, yes. here very, very shortly, <laughs> which I think would incentivize companies to then merge or collapse those. But yeah. it seems that, I mean, what's left for 245 cap A and, and other than some of the stranded E&P from tested losses? Yeah, I think I think that probably is the only thing left. So it's it would be the only remaining vestige uh, of a so-called territorial system, which to your point, I, I, I tend to describe 2017 as a dividend exemption system, not a territorial system. Uh, because we never really had a territorial system, right? Uh, but it's it's quite clear from these changes that what would remain is really only a you know a very small uh, residual, almost accidental uh, aspect of territoriality, and otherwise we would have a you know a full inclusion system, a worldwide system with some rate differential between active foreign income and all other income, and right. that would of course be represented by guilty, yeah. So the other proposal, and this kind of relates to this 245 cap A point, is a disallowance of deductions attributable to exempt income under Section 265. Tell us what what is the 265 yeah, and, yeah. and how our international tax heck? practitioners <laughs> that have all were scurrying, looking right. up, opening up the code. Right. And where like, did that come where from? Where did this come from? <laughs> 
So 265 uh, long predates, of course, uh, current law and predates, of course, the 2017 Act. Um, 265, certainly in my career, in my experience, generally thought about as a provision that would have application when you did something like borrowed to buy tax-exempt bonds. Uh, and so the idea being that if you, you know, if you had interest expense that was directly related to earning tax-exempt income, you should not get a deduction for uh, for that interest expense. Otherwise, effectively, you're creating you know negative taxed income. You have an mm-hmm. exemption on the income, and you have uh, a tax reduction from the interest expense. Um, the uh, this was a new starter in the green book, to be sure. Not something that the administration had otherwise you know indicated they were going to do. We had heard rumors that this is an idea that had been kind of circulating somewhat, uh, that there were some folks who were walking around pitching this idea on the Hill as a possibility of something that might be done. Uh, But the Green Book was the first we saw any description of it from the administration. And so the idea from the Green Book is to take that 265 concept and apply it now to income that is either exempt from U.S. tax under 245 cap A, right? And we talked about how there will be very little that is exempt mm-hmm. under 245 cap A uh, following, uh, following these other changes, if these other changes are implemented, but also to apply it to the portion of your guilty income that is taxed at below the full headline rate. In other words, if the guilty deduction is 25%, then you're, to the extent you have expenses that are allocable to your guilty income, you would lose 25% of the deduction for those expenses. And, you know, in the main, we're talking about here things like interest expense and stewardship mm-hmm. expense. These are U.S. expenses, domestically incurred expenses that are considered to be allocated to or allocable uh, to guilty income. Yeah, and it's important to remind listeners that we, because we've spent a lot of time in the cross-border tax talks talking about interest expense apportionment and the impact on the foreign tax credit limitation, that there, there's nothing that would say that would stop. This is just Correct. actually denying the deductions on the 1120 on the U.S. return yeah. for the portion of those expenses that relate to this exempt income. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's it's interesting. For a lot of companies, this is this, this is going to be a fairly complicated thing to think through and, 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 and consider the ramifications of for lots of reasons. Uh, but one of which is if you were allocating interest expenses, you noted, under current law, uh, or under a per country, let's say a per country guilty regime without 265, to the extent you're allocating interest expense to income that is high taxed, um, you're effectively not getting the benefit of a deduction for that interest expense anyway. Um, But having said that, in a per country guilty regime, you're going to have some low taxed income that would, you know, is going to pick up residual U.S. tax or where there will be uh, a real cost associated with a loss of deductions under mm-hmm. Section 265. So it's going to be a complicated mix as to how this applies to companies. To be sure, it's not good news for anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no company who's going to look at this and say, wow, I'm glad they did this. Uh, but uh, the, the, the details of how it will affect companies uh, are going to be you know, important to work through for individual companies, I guess. One thing I would note, just to, I, I would hope that this would apply to those future 245 Cap A deductions, because I think about taxpayers with a significant pile of pre any of these law changes, 245 Cap A, that could be disproportionately impacted by, by these rule changes. Yep. So let's let's move on to the the, the shield. Now we have another yes. new acronym. <laughs> the, the 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 U.S. has really stepped. The policymakers have really stepped up their game with the with the acronyms. Now we got guilty and beat, and now we're going to replace the beat with the shield. 
Um, I, I personally would just like to see the end of any of these yeah. fancy acronyms. Uh, yeah. But um, <laughs> what 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 is the the, the shield? And, and I'll note that this one is is potentially applicable for tax years beginning after 2022, or I, I believe. Yes. Now. Yes. So yeah, and that's you know an acknowledgement that what the administration has proposed with respect to the shield is really just extraordinarily complicated. Uh, it you know, makes one's hair hurt uh, to think through these, uh, the implications. But at a high level, what is the shield? Well, the shield is intended to replace the beat. The beat was a provision, a much unloved provision, I should point out, uh, that was introduced in 2017 that denied deductions uh, on payments to foreign related parties, payments from the U.S. to foreign related parties uh, in certain circumstances. And I won't certainly go through the details now. Um, at a very, very high level, shield is the same thing. It's a payment that denies deductions when payments are made from a U.S. affiliate to a related foreign party. Um, if we just stop there and say, okay, well, what's the, what's the difference? Well, SHIELD is, is one, conceptually, it's intended to align much more closely with the OECD's Pillar 2, uh, what the OECD has called an undertaxed payment rule. And so SHIELD is intended to target more precisely payments that go from the U.S. to a low-taxed foreign affiliate, okay? Uh, BEAT, of course, one of the things that was confounding about BEAT for, for, for companies was BEAT did not have any restriction in terms of applying it, whether you were making a payment from the U.S. to a high-tax foreign country or a low-tax foreign country. Uh, you still face this denial of deductions if the other conditions for BEAT were met. Um, so SHIELD is intended to, to focus, I guess I would say, focus more, more um, the administration would certainly say, appropriately on uh, income that's paid from the U.S. to, to low-tax foreign jurisdictions. The complexity of SHIELD comes in, I mean, one of the elements of the complexity of SHIELD, there are certainly many elements to it, but SHIELD does not limit itself to uh, simply a payment directly from the U.S. to a low-tax foreign affiliate. For example, it would also potentially apply if the if the if the overall multinational group uh, has low taxed income beyond simply the, the recipient of this payment from the U.S. So there's a, there's some sort of an attempt to kind of look at the overall low tax posture of the entire multinational group for purposes of determining how much deduction gets denied under Shield. Um, well, the other thing that's interesting about Shield is, like the beat, and again, one of the things that was not loved about the beat, um, the beat had what we oftentimes would call a cliff effect. Uh, if you were, you know, one dollar below the beat threshold, you didn't have the beat. If you were one dollar above, you faced this sort of, you know, vast panoply of, of unfortunate consequences. Shield has a different kind of cliff effect in that if you are, if the payment is considered to be caught up in the shield. It appears that you simply lose the deduction uh, for the payment. Uh, it doesn't matter if the payment is with respect to a zero tax foreign affiliate or a foreign affiliate that's taxed at one percentage rate below the minimum uh, mm -hmm. the, the minimum tax threshold, the relevant cutoff threshold. Um, that's a pretty harsh rule, and that's a pretty significant deviation from what the OECD has proposed in the undertax payment rule. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we could we could talk for a very long oh, yeah. time about the shield because there's a lot of complexity associated with it. But I think what I would most want to emphasize is um, it is, you know, I would say intellectually designed to replace the beat with something that looks more like the undertax payment rule at the OECD. It brings along a lot of complexity because it looks much more broadly than simply at the you know, the binary payment from the U.S. to a particular foreign affiliate. Um, and 
but the administration's motivation on this is clearly to present something that, you know, again, intellectually, analytically, uh, lines up more closely with the OECD project. Yeah, and my reading is is that this would really, because the, the, one of the challenges with BEAT is the impact that it has on U.S. multinationals and payments that U.S. have made to, to subsidiaries, to CFCs and foreign affiliates of the U.S., at least my reading, it wasn't explicit in the green book, but that because every, because for a U.S. multinational, all the payments would be subject to guilty now that the shield would effectively be turned off for U.S. MNCs that are making outbound payments to their foreign subsidiaries. Yeah. And uh, your good point, Doug, as as you say, it's not explicit, but it does seem pretty clear Mm -hmm. uh, that the shield would not apply, generally apply to to U.S. multinationals because none of their payments would be considered low taxed uh, because of the application of guilty. Okay. Now, along those lines, kind of inbound versus outbound and how these rules apply is the reintroduction of the concept of 163M and the restriction of of deductions related to excess interest expense. So let's just spend a couple minutes on that. And I know one of the big questions of this is, is this apply to inbounds? Is this apply to outbounds? We've been looking at the Obama (laughs) proposals and some of the uncertainty with that. So, uh, and you know, I'm sort of, you know, I'll I'll kind of point the finger at myself here. So I read um, the Green Book uh, and immediately saw this, this proposal which, as you note, would deny interest expense deductions to the extent that the U.S. group is more highly levered than the global group. Okay, so take a global global enterprise, and you do a comparison of your how much leverage you have in the U.S. compared to how much leverage you have kind of globally. Uh, and to the extent you're quote over levered in the U.S., you you would be denied interest expense deductions. To and that you compare extent. that to the EBITDA, I believe, to to figure yeah, out it's, where there, that's right. That's right. Uh, and and so th- that is a very similar concept to a provision that the 163 N provision that was included in uh, the 2017 TCJA, but was dropped in conference. The House had a version of this. The Senate had a version of this. They were slightly different versions in the computation, but principally that was what they were intended to and, do. And it originally showed up in the, the Obama Green Book, I believe. Well, it right? did. No, it did. It actually yeah. there was both in 27 and 2016 Obama Green Books. Um, now, interestingly enough, the 27 and 2016 Obama Green Books were, were quite explicit in saying this is a rule that targets inbound companies, meaning foreign multinationals investing in the United States. 163N, as the TCJA would have done it, was not so limited. So we would have applied equally to U.S. and foreign multinationals. So a lot of us, myself included, read this most recent Green Book thing as essentially, oh, they're going to go back to what was dropped from the TCJA. In fact, when you read much more carefully through the Green Book, the current Green Book, and you compare it to the 2017 and 2016 Obama Green Books, what you see is, well, actually, this this appears to be essentially the same proposal from those prior green books in the Obama administration, which, as I noted, those green books explicitly said this is targeted at foreign headquartered companies, not U.S. headquartered companies. Now, the current green book doesn't say that. It doesn't say it's targeted only at foreign headquartered multinationals, but the description would ap- it certainly can be read as effectively only providing for application to foreign headquartered mm-hmm. multinationals. So we don't formally know. And of course, as we talked about at the top, Doug, Congress can do what they want with this. So they can go back to the 163N version that was included in the TCJA, which would have applied to both U.S. and foreign multinationals. But based on what's in the Green Book, 
it looks as though this is a provision that would apply only to foreign headquartered multinationals. That's what it appears to be, but mm-hmm. I don't think we can say that definitively, but that's what it looks like. Well, we're certainly interested in some clarity on that yes, one. Yes. All right. Now I want to do a rapid fire here. Okay. Just a brief sure. description of, of some of the remaining proposals because I do want to spend a few minutes on the just how this relates to the OECD. Lots of references to the OECD and Pillar 2 and this assumption that we're going to the entire globe is going to get together. We're going to be singing Kumbaya and have a very consistent global tax policy, which I'm not optimistic. Spoiler alert. Um, but all right, let's start with limiting inversions. What, what, are, what does that provision mean? Yeah, so um, not a surprise because the administration has talked about it. But um, the administration, their point of view is that the current anti-inversion rules uh, are not tight enough, not tough enough. I actually, I look at this provision as essentially... I'll call it an admission by the administration that the other changes they are proposing are going to make it much more attractive for U.S. companies to become foreign companies, mm. to be taken over by foreign companies. And so, you know, they don't come right out and say that, but, you know, tightening up the inversion rules and making it so that, you know, in, in, in circumstances where previously where you had a combination of a U.S. company and a foreign company that wouldn't be considered an, an inversion, now they are tightening up those rules quite a bit more. Uh, we could obviously go into a lot of the details on it, but ultimately what they're essentially saying is because we're going to make the international rules a lot tougher, <clears throat> there may be an incentive for companies to invert and we're going to toughen up those rules to make it tougher. Yeah, and most notably and overly simplistically, they're moving that threshold from 60% yes. to, to, to 50%. To 50%. And that's going to be, a, obviously, I mean, any threshold is arbitrary, right. uh, but at a 50% threshold, you can see a lot of circumstances where, well, you know, it's essentially a foreign company that a few days before was larger than the U.S. company, but maybe, you know, how do you determine right. whether you're exactly at 50%? I mean, again, you could say the same thing about a 60% threshold, at least arguably. So it's, but, but dropping that threshold down at least presents itself as pulling more things into inversion. And anticipating that stock price change as a result of no, exactly. the deal announcement. No, and exactly. Getting to close. These and are presumably it's closing. It's like that's real challenges. Real challenges. Yeah. All right. The 15% minimum tax. We could dedicate an entire podcast to this, but what is this 15% minimum tax? And yeah. The, the standard based on financial accounting. Right, right. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we talk about it as a 15% minimum tax on book income. So essentially the, the genesis of this proposal, and this was, by the way, something Biden talked about on the campaign. So this is mm-hmm. not a new starter, yeah. not a surprise. Uh, but the genesis of it is really you've got companies who are profitable on a book basis but are not paying any cash tax currently to the United States Treasury. Uh, and, you know, the, the sort of, you know, gut reaction to that is, well, that's wrong. Big profitable companies not paying tax and we need to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start to dig into that, of course, you, you need to ask the question why. And as the administration is kind of advanced in their thinking on this proposal, you can see they're making it look less and less like a true 15 percent minimum tax on book income and more like the old corporate alternative minimum tax that mm-hmm. was repealed in 2017 where essentially what you do is you say, well, certain things that reduce your U.S. tax liability are okay. So general business credits, foreign tax credits, those things are okay. They reduce your U.S. tax liability, but they're not the things we're focused on. Um, the administration also noted in this proposal uh, that to the extent you have, you know, a, um, a, you pay an excess above what would be the minimum tax uh, amount in one year, that effectively becomes a credit that you can use in future years. Um, and so that also sounds like the old AMT, right? Where you're sort of, because the old AMT, to the extent you had an AMT liability, you got an AMT credit that you could use in future years. 
uh, when you were out of the AMT. So it was really intended to smooth out mm -hmm. these timing differences. So that's the direction the administration appears to be going here. Now, what's left out of that are things like, well, what if you have zero tax liability because you build a huge factory in the United States and you expense the cost of that? That's an incentive for capital investment in the United States that, you know, both both parties love, both mm -hmm. parties love uh, those kinds of incentives. So I'm not sure what Congress does with this one. There's a long way of saying I'm not sure what Congress does yeah. with this. We'll have to watch carefully. But it's still it's still kicking around as a proposal. So two, two other ones quickly. Mm -hmm. Limiting the foreign tax credits of hybrid entities. So the introduction of a... 338 H16 concept to out to, to CFCs. Yes. So also also a new starter. Um, and, you know, think of it as anti-hybrid, anti-check-the-box um, uh, proposal. And essentially, as you noted, Doug, what it would do is it would say, okay, you have done a, what I'll call a check-and-sell transaction. So you've checked the box on a foreign affiliate. Um, and the, the uh, stock of that foreign affiliate has now been sold. Um, and in that transaction, uh, for U.S. tax purposes, you're considered to have sold assets, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, this proposal would say, not so fast. We're going to treat you as having sold assets for certain purposes. For other purposes, we're essentially going to disregard the check-the-box election and treat you as having done a transaction in stock. Um, this would, those certain purposes would be, the you know, Green Book calls it source and character. I think of it really as basketing for foreign tax credit right. purposes. So it's really, so as a practical matter, what this would likely do is create passive basket income uh, that would be tested income under the guilty rules, I think, in a lot of circumstances. Um, so that will also be an interesting one to watch. We don't know um, uh, what Congress would do with something like that uh, and how important they will think it is, but it was, there were not a lot of surprises, real surprises in the Green Book. This was one of them. Mm -hmm. It's not something we had seen. Yeah. All right. And then the one sector specific wanted to, to mention for, for oil and gas, some changes to the FOGI and FORI rules briefly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the most interesting one from that perspective, actually, we should have touched on the, from the guilty uh, perspective, which is um, today there is an exemption uh, from, from the calculation of tested income for foreign oil and gas extraction income, FOGI. Uh, and the administration proposes to repeal that. That's sort of, a, you know, an interesting, um, an interesting change. It goes to your point about kind of eliminating, you know, most of the remaining vestiges of, of territoriality. Um, so the administration proposes to pull that out so that <clears throat> that income would be subject to tax under the guilty rules, um, just like all other income. Uh, also, they propose some changes to what they call dual capacity taxpayers. So this is, these are circumstances where you pay tax to a foreign, I'm going to use, air quotes here, tax to a foreign country, mm -hmm. some portion of that tax appears to be what I'll call a user fee for extracting natural resources. Um, there are already provisions in the Internal Revenue Code and the, and the regulations that would say, hey, to the extent that's a user fee, you don't get a foreign tax credit for it. The administration is proposing essentially to toughen those rules and make them tighter. So whether you think about that as a foreign tax credit provision or an anti-fossil fuels provision, you know, hard, hard to say, but I wouldn't have said that was a surprise. The, these kinds of ideas have been kicking around for a little while. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to, this would be a major change for, for those, those companies oh my that, goodness. that have Huge. Fogies. Huge. So uh, Huge. really, really big yeah. impact. 
All right, so maybe wanted to close things up looking outside the U.S. Um, I was fascinated by the number of references in the Green Book to the OECD, specifically Pillar 2, yes. and some of the, the, you know, the literature. We haven't even seen the final, obviously, BEPS 2.0 report right. at this point, but a lot of references to to the OE to the OECD. Yeah. So can you put that in a little bit of context yeah. and kind of what you view as what we're going to see um in so far sure. as our foreign jurisdictions going to to right. ad- adopt some of these rules that the administration has been obviously actively seeking their foreign counterparts. So there are a lot of different ways to potentially go with this, but maybe I'll start with why why does the administration talk about the OECD in the Green Book and, uh, you know, Pillar 1, Pillar 2, really Pillar 2 they mm-hmm. focus on in the Green Book? Why is it? It's not typically something you would see in an administration Green Book. Um, and I think the reason for that, you know, quite candidly, is the administration recognizes that they have a vulnerability. And that vulnerability is they're proposing changes to the guilty regime in particular um, that would really, relative to both current law and relative to every other country's law, uh, would be really very harsh uh, and would make the U.S. rules, which are already much tougher than any other country's rules, uh, would make the U.S. rules, the rules applying to U.S. companies operating outside the United States, even tougher. Um, and the administration recognizes that if they're going to get Congress to go along with these changes, one of the things they have to confront is this concept of competitiveness that we opened up mm-hmm. the podcast talking about. How will this affect U.S. abilities, the ability of U.S. companies competing against foreign companies in foreign markets? And so the the administration's response to that is, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Well, we've got an OECD project that's going to address this issue. We're going to get the rest of the world to go along and introduce a version of a minimum tax like we're proposing for guilty. Uh, And so you, Congress, don't need to worry about this because the rest of the world's going to go along. Now... There are real questions as to whether or not the rest of the world, in fact, will go along. Uh, And, uh, you know, the starting point on that, of course, is there are these discussions at the OECD. The OECD may very well reach some form of, quote, agreement to move forward with a minimum tax. I want to come back to some Mm -hmm. of the aspects of that in a second. But assuming that they do... That is not a, a position that is binding on any member country. So right. they nothing, have to adopt those right. laws. They have they to adopt that. it in, as part of their national laws. Um, and so, and, and by the way, if a country says, well, we're just not going to do it, we, maybe we agreed it at the OECD, but we've changed our mind, or we're going to wait a while, we're going to continue to study it. There's no recourse that any country has. And, and Ireland's already come out and say, we're not moving from 12.5. Right. And so that, and right. So you both have the question of whether countries will introduce it at all. And then you have the question of, well, if they're going to introduce some version of a minimum tax, what will it look like? Uh, and to that point, we have seen a number of countries, and, and you know, Ireland has certainly been one of the most prominent, saying, hey, you know, we're not necessarily opposed to the idea of a minimum tax. We think a 12.5% rate minimum tax sounds about right to us. Yeah. It happens to be the Irish rate. It's right. been the Irish rate for about 20 years. Uh, and, you know, they have steadfastly maintained the, the, the 12.5% rate, which I don't think it's an exaggeration to say. They, they really view it as almost part of sort of the national character of Ireland as a place to invest, as a place to bring your business. Come here, we have a 12.5% tax rate. So whatever the, the OECD agrees as a minimum tax, if countries introduce it, it seems quite clear that some of what I would, you know, call the details are going to be really important and may very well differ quite significantly from what the administration has proposed. That includes the rate. So Ireland saying, hey, we're not going to move from 12.5%. The implications of Ireland saying that means that the EU 
can't move from 12.5% because the EU cannot adopt something if Ireland says, right. we're not on board with it. There's a unanimity requirement in the EU. Um, so the rate is relevant there. Other things are also relevant. Uh, you know, the, we talked about the concept of QBI. We know that the OECD's version of a minimum tax doesn't just have a QBI concept. They have a very generous QBI concept, more generous than our current law, mm -hmm. QBI, which the administration is proposing to repeal. Right. So I don't want to call these things details because they're really, really important. Will the rest of the world go along with a minimum tax? Well, perhaps some countries will and some countries won't. Uh, what will the timing of the implementation of that be? Likely several years from now. We should be you know, straightforward about that, right? An mm -hmm. agreement at the OECD that then has to be turned into national law. That will not be a multi-month process. That will be a multi-year process with, in all likelihood, a number of countries, we haven't even talked about China, but the likelihood of China introducing a, for, a minimum tax on its multinationals doesn't seem that high. Uh, Frank, I'm just being blunt. I mean, we, you know, we don't know, but it doesn't seem that, that China does not seem favorably disposed to this. So Chinese companies not necessarily subject to this minimum tax either. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the landscape of what other countries will do and when they will do it, it's both highly complicated and it's highly relevant to Congress uh, right. as they think about what makes sense for the U.S. to do and what are the risks that the U.S. goes it alone and waits for other countries to catch up. Yeah, and one of the things that does not seem to, to be discussed much as, as part of this, overall, of this overall debate is the fact that countries are still competing for foreign direct investment and particularly developing countries have incentives, right, to try to attract more in FDI, right. more, foreign drive, more foreign direct investment. Yes. And so, you know, that will continue to be a challenge. Well, yes. we're, we're here at the end. I do want to give you the, the last word here on, you know, what, what, should, what should, should companies be thinking about? You know, any, any last word comments here before we wrap the podcast? Well, I, I'm going to go back to where we started, Doug. Um, I think it's really important for companies that are globally engaged to essentially have discussions and explain to policymakers. I would also say explain to your own employees why it is so important for your company to succeed outside the United States. You know, I know uh, when you have a company that makes products in the United States and sells them all around, all around the world, it may very well be that the folks working on the factory floor aren't aware of the fact that what you're making is, go, is bound for markets all around the world and your ability to compete in those foreign markets is directly tied to the jobs that those folks have. Um, it's important to make sure your employees understand that. It's really important to make sure that policymakers understand that, that they understand that the ability of companies to continue to grow uh, outside, you know, to, to continue to grow at all is going to be determined by how much they can do, how well they can do outside the United States. So that can mean factory jobs. It can mean research jobs. It can mean other form of HQ jobs. Uh, but the, are, there are direct implications between success in foreign markets for U.S. companies and U.S. jobs. And that's the point that people have to bring home to policymakers and, again, and to their own employees so that everybody understands that. Well, Pat, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great, great points to, to end things. And fantastic to see you in person. It has been almost 16 months since I've last seen you. We're both fully vaccinated now, and it's very refreshing to be able to, to sit down and talk with, with you about these very interesting concepts. And yes, indeed. As we get additional developments, you'll certainly hear about that on the Cross-Border Tax Talk, so stay tuned. And thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Thank you, Pat Brown, PwC's U.S. International Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. 
This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.